Welcome to the PeaceWorks Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Moles. I'm a pastor and biblical counselor who helps churches and families confront the evil of domestic violence and promote healthy, God-honoring relationships. And welcome back to the PeaceWorks Podcast, everyone. On today's episode, we're going to talk a little bit about prevention when it comes to sons. But before we jump into that topic, I'd like to remind you of PeaceWorks University. You know, week after week, I tell you about PeaceWorks University, and many of you are responding. Uh, If you are benefiting from the content you're hearing on the PeaceWorks podcast, then PeaceWorks University is your best next step. Uh, It is our membership community, and you are welcome to be a part of it. Uh, So many resources, so many people helpers, uh, videos, homework items, infographics, and community to help you respond to domestic abuse with gospel-centered solutions. If you'd like to learn more about PeaceWorks University, you can find out more at our website, chrismoles.org. All right, friends, so today's question is about abuse prevention in regards to sons who have witnessed or experienced their father's abuse. What encouragement or wisdom can you offer to family members who fear that a teenage boy is exhibiting characteristics of pride, entitlement, and control that may follow the same path as his abusive father? Well, thank you for the question, and a lot of different angles we could go at this. I think first, before we kind of get into the maybe steps that we can take, it might be helpful to talk about um, causation versus um something that's contributing, contributive versus causative. Uh, There are some unique studies out there, some content out there that might be helpful. I think one that we've used on the podcast before and in some of our teaching is the ACEs study. And granted, you know, the ACEs is um, Adverse Childhood Experiences Study. It's a very simple 10-question quiz uh, that's often given to assess individuals, you know, childhood trauma, childhood experiences. And while it is by no means um, the gospel, I mean, it's not that significant. It is significant enough in that it tells us a little bit about the experiences that people had in childhood. And um, one interesting note is that criminal abusers, individuals who are in um uh, incarcerated or in um, abuse programs from the criminal justice system, uh, those men tend to have a higher ACEs score, somewhere in the 60 to 70%. And that is significant. We don't know exactly what that means, but we, we do recognize that that's significant enough to say, okay, trauma, maybe past abuse, has a contributive factor in future abuse. And and here's how I would put it. Of all the years that I've worked with abusive men and gotten to know men who are abusive, I would say that abuse is a learned behavior. It's something that is taught or caught, as it were. When I say it's a learned behavior, I would say the two primary means by which people learn abusive behavior is through modeling or through trial and error. And so What I mean by modeling is the heart of this question today. We've seen it. 
we've experienced it and we've seen the effect or the impact of it, right? And some would say, you know, why would you turn to abusive behaviors if you experience abusive behaviors? And we can get into kind of some deep aspects of, of trauma or trauma bonding or, or other conversations, but I think there is a simple answer um, for those of us who are kind of um, maybe not in the, in the deep weeds on this is it works like abuse works. Now it has long-term and lasting consequences. It certainly has negative effects on the individuals being harmed. But when it comes to gaining control by using force, power, threat, coercion, abuse works. It gets us what we want, uh, especially in the short term. And so when we talk about modeling, somebody who's experienced abuse, yes, there are complexities to that. There's a lot of things that uh, we would want to unpack if we were working, say, with an abuse survivor who is later in life harming others. And that is a unique balance of shame and then also accountability and responsibility because there are plenty of people who've been abused that don't abuse others. And so it, it is a choice to use that type of harm against an intimate partner. But um, one of the ways we can learn those behaviors is by experiencing them, seeing them up close, and recognizing that they work. They get you what you want in the short term. The same is true for trial and error, which, you know, I think there is kind of an assumption that abuse is always a cycle, that it is always generational. Certainly we see it generationally. I mean, there's no denying that there's significant threads of historical trauma and abuse that run through families where that hasn't been broken. And it's kind of um, everybody's learned really well from the previous generation. But there's also learning that comes through trial and error, which is, again, abuse, using power to control, to get what we want, coercion, threat, and fear for short-term solutions. It gets what it gets us what we want. It works. And so... For a young man who is creatively just inherently stronger than their partner, um, perhaps, perhaps uh, positionally is um, seen as more credible or financially is far superior or a combination of all of those things, right? Then to meet resistance, criticism, critique, or even a difference of opinion with force could be a means of testing, pushing, learning that this use of force and threat coupled with my own position and advantages works. And so young men in particular, without the, the discipline and wisdom of age or discipleship or mentorship could easily fall into a trap of never having experienced abuse, but then perpetrating abuse because it is easy. So I hope that is helpful on the outset as we think about young men who witness abuse. How do we help them? Understand that all young men are in many ways susceptible to the idea of abuse because abuse really is formulated in this heart of pride, which we all struggle with, coupled with this idea of advantage, power, and position, which young men in particular will find themselves at some point in a relationship having an advantage 
where they have to balance their own power and strength with responsibility and care and respect. And that's a cultural problem too. So sometimes you'll hear our secular friends and sometimes you'll hear me use the language, the collective socialization of men, which was kind of the cultural milieu up until about five minutes ago when um, things kind of shifted. But for a long time, the culture was really the old adage of it's a man's world. And so there was um, this collective socialization around force and threat and manliness and manhood from popular movies to political figures to music. And it has adapted significantly over the years to, and it, it bred all kinds of excuses such as, you know, boys will be boys and, um, aspects in which manhood and masculinity were about dominance and superiority. Now, I think the culture has responded um, in kind of a knee-jerk way, and in our current cultural state, there's a little bit of a culture war over gender fluidity, which I think is actually heightening the problem, as opposed to talking about what we share as people or even taking a Christian or biblical approach that we're all made in the image of God. We're now overemphasizing gender characteristics under emphasizing um, external biological realities and it is conflating many of the problems and I think the kickback to that and I think there is going to be somewhat of a, a cultural pushback to our current current cultural um, discussions is I think we are going to see some some hyper masculine responses some um, kind of gendering peripheral um, tribalism that is going to return us a little bit to some of the um, problems that maybe we experienced before. So culture is not really helping, um, in my opinion, unpack some of these learning trees, whether it be my own father, right, and, and his relationship to my mom, or whether it be the culture's relationship to women, or whether it be the culture's understanding of men and women in general or specific, or even theologically, um, how those are being interpreted through um, a faith-based grid, which as we know, for, for many of us, they were interpreted much more patriarchally, uh, much less complementary, com- complementary um, and, and much less about respect mutuality and much more about um, obedience and in some ways um, subjectification. And so I think there will be a theological responsibility to that. Now, oh, Chris, you're, you're all over the place. I am today. But I wanted to lay just a little bit of a framework so that we could move into this question and say, okay, what do we do? So our son has learned um, some of these behaviors. Or at the very least, he's displaying some of the entitlement and pride and control issues that are evident in his father. What may be some of the things we can do? I think conversations are the best first place that we can go. How do we talk about um, not necessarily his dad, although that may be a talking point. It may not. I mean, in so many abusive relationships it is difficult to talk to the children about their dad's abuse because that's their dad. And you're trying to be the um, 
a reasonable parent. You're trying to be respectful. Uh, but there probably will come a time where you'll have to talk about some of the significant harm you experienced. Uh, but early on, I'm, I'm thinking not so much about highlighting dad's bad behavior as much as really talking about where that type of behavior comes from in general, what it does to your own soul, how it affects other people, and having conversations uh, around some key terms that need both relational unpacking and theological unpacking. Let me just give you a couple of those. Violence. Violence is a big one. I, I recall years ago working with a young man who had all of the markers that the questioner today is talking about. There was no indication that they were abusing a girlfriend or, or anyone like that, but there were certainly enough red flags emanating from their heart to think, wow, if you get into an intimate relationship, there is so much potential, right? It's like it, this, the, the stick of dynamite is not lit, but it is certainly prepared because your heart has prepared you. And one of the, one of the red flags for me was the, the young man's propensity towards violence and the glorification of violence. Um, and what I mean by that is just the willingness to talk about other people in aggressive, forceful, and violent terms that other people were out to get him. And it wasn't necessarily paranoia as much as it, not to that heightened sense that you might think in a counseling relationship, but it was much more about, yeah, you have to watch out for other people, you know, because other people will take advantage of you. And so you have to be prepared to fight for what's yours. And it was like, it was really an all or nothing type thinking, if that might be a better way to put it. And so violence was seen as all or nothing. It's, it's like I'm either completely passive and disengaged and a doormat, or I'm aggressive and violent. And that was a huge problem. And it was a worldview problem that was based, again, in pride and entitlement. And so that was one of those red flags. How do we talk about violence? Do we really put violence in perspective? And if we're... and for this young man, he claimed to be a believer. And so that was one of those tricky issues for me as we're talking through. How does a believer, how does someone who claims to follow Christ engage so heavily in conversation about violence and harm and threat, you know, as if you are the center of the universe when it comes to protection and force? Another category is respect. How do we talk about respect? Uh, again, using another um, anecdote, another um, story. I once worked with a young man who, and this was a, not, not an atypical reality. This was not uh, something outside the norm. I would often have young men, young men, especially in the criminal justice system, who really did not understand the term respect. They had a very warped view of respect, and it usually revolved around the term disrespect. And so I remember one night in particular talking with a young man, and I was pushing. I was challenging some thinking, um, not in an aggressive way. So I'm seated, he's seated, we're in a group setting, and I'm just asking questions. And he says, man, why are you disrespecting me? And I'm like, so I don't, don't believe I am disrespecting you. What do you mean? And he kept pushing that I was being disrespectful, that I was disrespecting him. Through dialogue and remaining calm, right, we got to the conclusion that for him, disagreement was disrespect. My, my unwillingness to cave to his point of view and to continue to challenge it 
was disrespectful. And, and that was such a kind of slap in the face for me, you know, kind of a, um, to think, okay, we've got to back up here and talk about respect and disrespect in relation to being people, not in relation to opinion. And, um, I think those are healthy conversations we can have with our kids. What does it mean to respect, to show deference, to, to sacrifice, but also to have your opinion and remain, you know, resolute? What does it look like um, to do that respectfully? In particular, how does it look to respect women? And what does that mean for us both in our external realities, how we treat our classmates, how we treat um, our, our friends' mothers, how we treat women in general, how we understand images on you know, Instagram and Snapchat and, and the Internet, and how do we filter those images and realities that we're bombarded with through this filter of respect for people made in the image of God. So those type of conversations are also healthy conversations. So hopefully what you're seeing here is I don't know that we can adequately combat or give our sons, you know, a perfect scenario so that they never participate in an act of abuse because abuse is easy and it does work. But I believe that worldview development, actually understanding some of these things, really wrestling with what we believe uh, can, can be the best defense against that. Because if I have a, a an aversion to violence, and I see violence not as redemptive, but as destructive, and that I don't want to participate in destructive behavior. And I also see as coercion, threat, uh, cultivating fear, shame as being part of that destructive pattern, Then, and I'm adverse to it, I want to avoid it. If I see respect as valuable, not simply as a bargaining tool where, you know, you know, respect is earned type of nonsense, um, but that respect is freely given, um, then I can function in the world, I think, a little better knowing that I can't require other people to respect me. I will have discomfort in my life because of other people's selfishness. But as for me, as for the choices that I make, I will choose to be respectful. I will choose that as part of my identity because I value it. Um, the, The same could be true uh, when it comes to uh, aspects, even language such as commitment. What does it mean to be a committed person? Uh, does that mean you're requiring other people to be committed to you, or is it you following through on your um, commitment? So you see what I'm doing here is just talking about worldview, how we view ourselves, how we view God, how we view others, I think is the greatest shaping influence when it comes to kind of curbing abusive behavior, because where does abusive behavior primarily come from? We're going to suggest the heart and a heart of pride and entitlement. You must serve me. I must get what I want. I can't lose. I have to protect myself. And if, if those are not, I think, addressed openly and um, an alternative is not given early, then a lot of people will run to that. And we, we encounter that all the time, right? Not even in abusive relationships, but with, with bullying personalities or um, maybe sometimes high achievers that don't mind just running over people in their path. Um, if you really got down and, 
in the in the dirty, you know, the nitty gritty with those folks, you'd probably find a high view of accomplishment, success, winning, and not so much a high view of others, respect, um, the virtues that we're called uh, to cultivate. And you know, when you're when you're prone towards your self-serving, uh, self-serving worldview, then objectification will be a much more likely outcome. Um, control, coercion, a much more likely outcome. So I know I'm speaking very theoretically here, but as the question comes in, what wisdom can you offer family members who fear that a teenage boy is exhibiting characteristics, you know, like their father, is to offer a stark contrast and one that's desirable. So I often, you know, I used to say quite a bit, when I was teaching on the work that we did with abusive men was you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. That's the old adage, right? Uh, But you can feed them crackers. And so it's the idea of I cannot force anyone to choose life, to choose constructive relationships, healthy relationships, to choose others. Um, but my hope is we can offer such a stark contrast that they become thirsty for the other. Because while abuse works in the short term, it has long-term and devastating consequences for the person being abused, for the people witnessing the abuse, for the person committing the abuse. And so what would it take to offer an alternative that says there's a better way? Nonviolence has superior long-term outcomes to violence. Respect has superior long-term outcomes to disrespect. Gentleness has superior long-term outcomes to coercion. And here's the example of that. Here's the realities of that. Here's why you will, you will benefit so much more. Your partner will benefit so much more. Your kids will benefit so much more by breaking this reality, this generational trauma, this generational curse, as it were, to, to choose something different, to choose life, to choose Jesus. So uh, I hope that was helpful. I, I know I was kind of all over the map on that one, but uh, yes, contributive, certainly not causative. There's always hope for individuals, even those who've witnessed abuse as a child, uh, to make better choices, um, and especially when the gospel is involved. Thank you guys for being part of the PeaceWorks podcast today. We appreciate everyone. If you're listening, would you rate, subscribe, review, follow, whatever the platform you're listening on asks. Let them know how much you value the PeaceWorks podcast. Thank you guys again. We appreciate you so much. Until next time, God bless.